Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum, episode 35. And we're here with a very special guest this afternoon. Her name is Tina Landis, and she's a founding member of the Party of Liberation and Socialism, PSL. And she also has a book that I read that's called Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, which is going to be the meat of the discussion today. But I do have other questions. And she's also a contributor to the Socialist Reconstruction book that was published um, through the PSL uh, membership. And she has a lot of just work in social justice and advocacy that um, issues that we all care about on the forum. And so I just want to say welcome, Ms. Tina Landis, to the show. And thanks for accepting the invitation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yes. And I want to start out, I guess, with my audience, since they don't know who you are. Maybe some people do know who you are. Because there are some PSL people, I think, that follow the forum. I know Green Party people do. But um, how did you kind of get started in um, environmental activism and climate change? Have you always been a part of this movement? Yeah, so um, I got really politically active um, right after 9-11 and, and got involved in the anti-war movement and met the Answer Coalition. And then from there got involved in lots of social justice um, struggles and and the environmental movement was always, um, you know, part of my life from a very early age, I was concerned about the environment. Um, so yeah, and then in, we formed the PSL in 2004. And from there, you know, I, I really saw the need for socialism to to really overcome all the the problems that we face in, in our in in the US and globally, all the the contradictions and the, the poverty and injustices and the environment, environmental issues as well. So um, from there, yeah, I, and then I started working in the field. I work in air quality regulation and climate protection, have been doing that for the last 11 years. Um, and then, you know, slowly started to do a lot of self-study around the issue of climate change and went through a program at UC Berkeley in sustainable management. And just from there, just really built up my knowledge base of the issue and really saw saw the shortcomings of, of a lot of, you know, academia and obviously the mass media. I really um, saw the need to have a different narrative out there. So I wrote the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism to really look at the problem of climate change um, beyond the limitations of the system that we live under and see and, and really just talk about the tools and the solutions that actually exist um, and how they could be implemented under a socialist system. And I tell you, um, I don't know if you all read, obviously you have, but when I read it at first, I was a little scared. I mean, 
because when I read books, I love to read from cover to cover, like everything, like all the credits. I want to know who's behind everything. But at first it started out, I was like, clearly there's an intent to have like an eco of socialist perspective. And um, it read like a manifesto. It really did at first. And I was I was wondering, I was like, is it going to be like this the whole book? And and I think you did a really good job of driving the point that capitalism um, holds back basically life as we know it. Um, and the whole purpose is just to generate profits and to, um, you know, just everything else that we know about capitalism, all the downfalls of the late stages that we're in. But... Um, mm -hmm. It was it was like a pamphlet driven. I was like, is this come to manifesto meets the PSL? I wasn't <laughs> sure what to expect. But then when I started reading the data and stuff, I think it kind of lowered my um not concerns, but I guess as a reader, it lowered my um possible inhibitions into getting caught up in language. Mm -hmm. And um I don't want to get into the language quite yet because that's gonna be a question towards the end. But I am curious as to um where is the PSL and the Green Party? Is there a divergence in ideology when you talk about the environment and climate? If there is one, where is that divergence between the Green Party and PSL, for instance? Yeah, I mean, we work with the Green Party in a lot of different initiatives, um, but the Green Party tends to look at the solutions within the system. So, so more like social democrat um, positions. So, so reforms within the system, um, more social. Um, benefits for people, more of a, a social safety net and, you know, free education, free healthcare, things like that, like more of the European model, as opposed to revolutionary socialist position that, that the PSL has, which is we need to uproot the whole system of capitalism because every reform that we do win under this system, as soon as the movement ebbs, are taken back, right? You can see that with, you know, there, even with the environmental movement, you know, the EPA was formed due to the mass movement in the 60s and 70s, right, that demanded there be protections for the environment. Um, and, and slowly, you know, beginning with Reagan, completely started to defund it and slowly whittling away the powers of the EPA, which were never really strong enough to begin with. But, you know, you can see that under capitalism, you know, it, it's a constant struggle to keep any gains that we do win, and they, they tend to just be taken back as soon as the 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 powers of BEC that the movement is weaker, right? And people people won't stand up as they were before. Um, so yeah, so our party is more, you know, we're 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 looking to to completely transform the system, right? Into a socialist system that can really use the resources of society to provide the needs of people and the planet, right? Um, whereas the Green Party is looking more towards reforms. It's that's my understanding. I mean, I I I don't follow the Green Party super closely, um, but we do ally with them on many projects um, and yeah, I have worked with them and, and do work with them. Thanks for that clarification because um, I, I kind of thought that all along, but I wasn't 100% sure. I figured I'd ask the person face to face um, because the Green Party, even not just nationally and locally at times, it seems like they're almost um, incrementalist in a way when it comes to like, it's almost like Democrats who just defected as Democrats and they want to change something up. But the PSL to me seems like it has its own unique identity and their clear boundaries and differences and principles. And I think the Green Party can be a little bit more loose. So that makes a lot more sense, like um, based on what you just said, as far as that's concerned. 
there's definitely more of a, a strategic and um, calculated um, angle when you talk about the environment, climate, social justice, everything else, which leads me to another question um, before we get into your book. Where is the climate justice movement? Where does that intersect with the social justice movements like um, with Black people, Indigenous people? Because I've always viewed environmental issues, and maybe this is at, just because of my own fault and upbringing, but I've always been very distanced in a way from environmental and climate issues because growing up as a Black person in the South, it seems like that becomes almost the center stage. And maybe that is part of the trauma of, of just the country, having to like focus on what do we center ourselves around. And for whatever reason, identity is always a big thing for Black people. I'm not going to say for all Black people, but for me especially, it was in my early years growing up. Um, not so much now because I've learned more politically, but I've always had this struggle with the environmental movement and climate initiatives, almost seems separate from other justice movements. Will you agree with that? And how do we um, bridge those two together or or make them understand each other a little bit better? Yeah. So, tra yes, traditionally, the environmental movement has been very white middle class, um, you know, with others, um, you know, to some degree. But but it tends to be dominated by and still is very dominated by the NGOs, um, which really, yeah, in my opinion, is problematic because it doesn't it doesn't allow for a revolutionary voice. It doesn't allow for a, a broad range of voices, um, you know. But there's different, you know, organizing on the local level all around the country. Right. So it's it's a very it's shifting now, I feel like, um, especially since the, the sort of uprising of Standing Rock and the indigenous movement really coming to the forefront of um, of fighting against, you know, extractivism and, and for environmental protections and against climate change. Um, and yeah, so it's the movement has become more diverse, I feel, in the last, you know, decade, maybe. Um, but yeah, there needs to be more of that, right? There needs to be more connecting the dots, right, between the local struggles, between all the struggles we face, the struggle against police brutality. We're struggling against capitalism there too, right? We're struggling against this dominant, you know, white supremacist system, right, that, that divides us and, and oppresses certain communities, right? Um, and it's the same system that's that's destroying our planet, right? That's just going around the world, just like extracting everything, sees everything as a commodity um, and keeps us divided, right? So yeah, the PSL really sees we need a multinational working class movement, a working class organization that's unified across race, across class, or well, not necessarily class, but across borders, um, you know, to really... If we're not unified, if we're not working on, you know, broadly on all these struggles that all stem from the system of capitalism, um, you know, we need we, we won't overcome it, right? We can't we can't just fight, you know, LG, LG, LGBT people fighting on their struggle and others women's fighting on, you know, issues of sexism. You know, we all need to fight together to overcome these issues. Um, so yeah, we need to we need to do that with the climate justice movement. We need to broaden it. It needs to be it's everyone's issue, right? It's like we all we all are facing the impacts of climate change. Of course, it impacts the poor and the working class the most globally. Um, but but yeah, it's really important to bring in all those voices and and you know struggle on the local issues because you know all around the country it's it's the communities of color it's the low income communities that have that face the worst pollution they have the the industries in their backyards the freeways in their backyards and are facing 
you know, the real health impacts of, of environmental pollution. Um, so yeah, we need, we need to make those connections and build those bridges. Sure. Absolutely. And as far as your book is concerned, how does that work with um, your book, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism? Is that something that's um, published independently of Liberation School? Like this Corpus Liberation School, is that through PSL? And is all the publication done through Liberation School? Liberation Media, yeah. We reproduce our own yeah, publications, usually written by our members, but sometimes, you know, in partnership with others um, who are not members. So yeah, so my my book is published through that Liberation Media. It's available on Amazon as well. But um, but yeah, and it was really I really wrote it um, because I saw within the activist community even so many folks had so much anxiety about climate change and didn't understand that there are actually solutions that exist. And it was really hard to even have a discussion about it um, because and I get it. <laughs> like before I knew there were solutions, I also was like. Even though I cared about the environment, I had a lot of anxiety just thinking about climate change. Um, so I really felt it was important to write something for for the the activists who are who are who want this change but don't necessarily have all the information, and to really write and that's why it was concise as well is like just to give a little a few examples that people could then delve deeper into. Right, it's it's really well referenced. So people can can go back and learn more about all the things I talk about. But to really give an overview that that. The tools exist. We know what to do. We know what needs to happen, and and how you know and how capitalism has has brought us to this situation in the first place. Um, but that it is possible to make this change. That was the the scary part about your book was um, your book has so much factual information that it is scary, honestly, because I believe the solutions. I mean, that's a perfect way to include it in the title. Unfortunately, I believe the capitalists already know the solutions. They know that we can go to a green sustainability system um, under a socialist, you know, society. They already know that, I feel. Um, mm -hmm. And so to me, it seems like greed is keeping this thing held back um, because pe I think capitalism, if it does anything, it it definitely encourages people to um, to 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 strive for things, but not considering other people like it, it's just just like a doggy dog type mentality and um you know regardless of whatever the consequences happen hey you got to survive on your own you have to do it on your own and i think we become so complacent and that complacency has led us to where we are right now because there's definitely resistance within this system but i think there's so much complacency too and this book definitely urges us to kind of like get rid of this comatized state that we're in of um, complacency with just all the data, the urgency. Um, according to the book, there's a rise of global temperatures 45 degrees Celsius. And you're saying that if we follow some of the advice of this book, that we can lower that to 1.5 Celsius. Yeah, I mean, studies show, you know, we could we could actually reverse climate change in with, within just one generation if we had major transformations of how we live on the planet, right? But we do, ha we have the knowledge, we have the tools, but yeah, the system of capitalism really, I mean, the way the system is set up, you know, it, you, you can't plan long-term, right? It's like corporations plan for the next quarter, you know, how, how much 
how many profits they can, how can they increase their profits for the next quarter, right? Um, and government has, you know, very little power to, to implement any changes. It has to be within partnership, these public-private partnerships, right, um, can provide incentives or, or, you know, tax corporations for doing certain things wrong or whatever, but it, it doesn't have the power to make sweeping transformations in society. Like, for instance, like, you know, implementing renewable energy from coast to coast, right? It's because the oil companies have to go along with it, right? And the, and the power power companies have to go along with it, which are all privately owned or to the, for the most part. Um, yeah, and, and, and just the nature of capitalism, you know, it requires endless growth. It's, it's part of the system, right? And, and it allows, you know, it, it's up to the free market to, to provide what we need to live, right? Which is not... <laughs> not a good plan um and even if one capitalist one one ceo of one company wanted to truly be environmentally sustainable right they would be replaced by another ceo that didn't prioritize that because it really is not profitable right to have you'd have to not not be seeking out those profits you'd have to you'd have to scale back your production you'd have to you know do everything you know in a sustainable way which costs more um so yeah, the system itself is is holding us back as a, a species, right? It, it's holding back humanity from actually overcoming um, all these problems that we're facing um, with climate change, which you know ripples out into many things, right? Health, public health, you know, hunger, you know, all these, yeah, other other impacts, right? Displacement of people, you know, the refugee crisis all around the world that's related to climate change. It's so, so many things ripple out into society that all stem from that. And yeah, capitalism really can't solve it because it's it's really the cause of the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it encourages, um, like you said very well in the book, this idea of brainwashing everything. Um, I thought about just this, just simple things like recycling and how that has become just... Um, they make they emphasize things so hard, but they're very small in the in the gist of everything, and and that's kind of what your book drives the point is um the sea levels and and the rainforest and everything else is more than just um individual. This is a systemic thing that has to change. It's not um the poor person down the street or or even the rich person down the street that's causing the heating of the earth like. That stuff can be reversed if these if this whole system changes. And going into that, some what would be, I guess, some of the most important points in your book, if you're telling someone who hasn't read it, like what would be some of the immediate things that your book addresses to um, I guess convince someone that's a little bit more skeptical? Yeah. So you mean skeptical that that climate change is a problem or skeptical mm -hmm. of it? Mm-hmm. I really think that most people at this point aren't like climate change deniers, you know, I think those that do exist are tied to fossil fuel corporations. In some oh, way. yeah. <laughs> um, in some way, somehow in their personal interest to deny that this is a problem. I mean, we see everywhere around the globe, you know, the extreme weather that's happening. It's, you have to really be blind to the world around you to not not realize what's happening. Um but the problem of, you know, 98% of media, mainstream media stories about climate change only focus on, on the problem, right? The unraveling of our climate. And it, they never talk about solutions in a, in a real way. Um, 
you know, other than maybe like, oh, this corporation's making, you know, electric vehicles, or which is not, you know, the solution. Um, so people don't have the knowledge, right? They don't understand that there are solutions. Um, you know, studies, another study shows that despite, you know, increasing awareness and concern in the U.S. population about climate change, only 5% of people think there's anything we can do about it. So wow. I feel like it's, yeah, like why it's so important to like talk about these issues and really talk about the solutions, because if people don't know there are solutions, they're not going to stand up and demand action, which is what we need, right? We need another big mass movement, right? We need a mass radicalization of the population that sees sees we we the people do have the power to to make the change and that if when we organize we can we can actually get concessions from our government like we have in the past and that in the end we we are the ones who have the power and the knowledge to to implement the changes that are needed and we just need to do it right um and yeah so so yeah it's i don't think denialism is really a widespread issue um, it's really a lack of hope and a lack of understanding that we can actually turn it around, um, which, yeah, which is why I try to speak on this issue as much as possible and, you know, support others who are who are speaking about the solutions, um, because that's really, that's really how we're going to shift things. But unfortunately, you know, six major corporations own all the mainstream media. Um, it's really hard to get, to get any other message out beyond beyond that other than through great podcasts like yours and others yes um there's i'm going to read a few um stats out here and i was thinking about something when you talked about this planned economy this idea of a planned economy i think and that would go to something that i have towards the end about the language um because i think people get so caught up in these terms like socialism and communism and capitalism and that's what I liked about the book is that it, it gives you solutions. And, and regardless of what your ideology is, this is telling you this is a solvable issue. There's, there's no excuses, really. I think what gets to people is um, it bothers their conscience because this is tied to the political system, unfortunately. Like, I kept reading your book, and towards the end, I, there's nothing that you could really argue as far as the evidence that you presented. But it's a matter of people their whole political ideology would have to change, I feel. And I don't care what spectrum you're on because we're so captured by the same system you mentioned um, several times. It, it is basically programmed us into becoming um, black, white, binary solution type people. Like everything, if you're not with me, you're, you're against me. If, if this doesn't work, that means nothing can work. Like that's basically the way it's kind of trained us to be. And um, the war machine is really what I thought about too. Just um, we know that the military is the largest polluter on the planet. And um, mm -hmm. I don't know what you said about the Navy, about how much they just dispose in the ocean, just like casually. And it's, um, but it's one of those issues now where there's a lot of anti-war sentiment. But the, as you mentioned, the mainstream media is covering for those military contractors because they're in partnership together. Um, the fossil fuel industry is in partnership with these media corporations. So, and that's the tough part is the lobbying that you mentioned. Um, it goes back to politics again. All these politicians are tied to lobbyists and these lobbyists are tied to the corporations and they're basically bought at that point once they get into office. So it doesn't matter 
if they say that they're progressive or conservative or whatever they want to call themselves, they're basically all the same once they're compromised by these huge CEOs of these companies. I mean, that's what it seems like happening. In the U.S., it's like the, the, the political narrative is so tightly controlled, right? We don't have a parliamentary system like other countries have where there's a wide array of voices, right, from the left and, and towards the right. But, but to really, where really you could have, you know, in, in Europe, we, the PSL would have seats in parliament. I mean, we're big right. enough now. So, that, so people would be hearing different positions. In the U.S., it's like you hear two corporate parties. You hear <laughs> basically slightly more to the right and and more to you know slightly more for the center right um at this point and and it's really you know these are our our so-called representatives are multimillionaires and yes they are backed by the corporations you know biden had the second largest campaign donations from fossil fuel corporations in 2020 yeah he was the climate president you know it's <laughs> great changes right but they're all you know it's it's like <laughs> Yeah, there's just no room for a, a different narrative. So people don't hear, which, you know, so so especially if I feel like younger people are way more open to socialism and the, they're not freaked out by the word socialism anymore, especially since Sanders. Um, it's more the older folks who, who grew up during the Cold War period and just had it hammered in, into their brain that communism is evil and capitalism is the only way forward and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so yeah, we have something to overcome with with that issue of people just not understanding what socialism really is. Um, but like I said, younger people by far are way more open, um, and they do understand the basics at least. You know that hey, yeah, because they see like there's no future, right? It's like you're in student debt forever. You you can't pay for healthcare. You can't get a decent job. Like all these things because capitalism is is not <laughs> is not working for the majority of us. Um, but yeah, it's, um, and the military, talking about the military, it's like there's these UN climate summits all, you know, every every year and, and imperialism is never talked about, right? The military, the US doesn't have to report emissions from the military at these, in these summits, right? It's like, it's like the elephant in the room, like it's just never talked about, even though the Pentagon is the largest consumer of fossil fuels on the planet um, and will never be green, I'm sorry. <laughs> And the whole system of imperialism, right? That just keeps keeps countries from developing independently, keeps them from you know, indebted to the global north. You know, I mean, all these IMF austerity loans and the the trade deals that always benefit the global north and impoverish keep the global south impoverished um, and really unable to develop in a clean in a green, um, you know, with clean energy and all these things, right? Um, and not to mention the wars and the, the interventions and the coups and all these things that the U.S. influence around the world um, that just keeps keeps us all divided and unable to actually develop on a sustainable path globally. Um, but yeah, and and yeah, the U.S. is a huge polluter. I mean, all the bases around the world, over 800 bases, they're all end up being toxic sites. You know, the burn pits in Iraq where they just literally burned everything they covered in jet fuel and just burned it and and now the vets are, are paying for it with you know horrible lung conditions and cancer um not to mention the local people <laughs> in those countries but yeah in the u.s you know the the war the the bomb testing they do like off the coast of florida every year that just destroys so much marine life and causes so much pollution i mean just everything they do and they get away with it because they say oh it's for national security right i mean which is just complete lies 
um, yeah, they have they they can pollute wherever they want um, without any repercussions. The regulations don't apply to the military, literally. Um, and you can see it, you know, on on native lands in in New Mexico, where the uranium uranium mining comes starts. You know, the whole process of <laughs> nuclear weapons and all these things like it goes, it impacts our communities here too, right? Um, but yeah, it's it without and without like a global system of cooperation, like there's no way we can ever overcome climate change. We need the opposite of what imperialism and capitalism does, which is to pit each other, pit countries against each other, right? To as competitors, um, we need the opposite of that. We need global co cooperation to really, you know, to help the global South develop in a sustainable path, pay reparations for the legacy of colonialism and, and imperialism. Um, to really help everyone develop on a sustainable path. And that's totally possible. I mean, the US, in the US, we spend, you know, the government spends nearly a trillion dollars a year on the war machine, which mainly goes to the weapons manufacturers, right? Um, so the money is there, not to mention also the, the bank bailouts that continue to happen. Um, you know, like there's always money for corporate bailouts, there's always money for the war machine, but there's never money to like you know, pay to help the global South develop or to even help communities here in the US, right? So, so all these factors really play into the situation. Um, and, and, and yeah, the, like you mentioned, the socialist planned economy. I mean, you know, under socialism, you look at, you look at what's needed for the next, usually it's like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. Cuba actually has a hundred year, 100-year plan for climate change adaptation. So they're looking like the next century, what do we need to do to protect to protect our country, to, to address sea level rise and, and drought and all these things and, and, and for the well-being of their population. Um, but under capitalism, you can't do that, right? There's no, there's no planning. It's like, it's, it's more a reactive system. It's like when some major crisis happens, it's like, okay, what are we going to do to just prop it up a little longer? So, so it can still function so we can still exploit the workers and you know get our, our profits but um there's never any long long-term planning that's really has any holistic perspective on the on the problem i mean speaking from california where you know we got a lot of rainfall this year but we're still in this 20-year mega drought and there's there's really no plan of how to overcome that even though it's pretty simple, it's like 80% of our water resources goes to industrial agriculture. Like, okay, so how do we make agriculture better, right? How do we how do we reduce, reduce water needs? I mean, it's pretty simple. Stop growing things that shouldn't be grown in this climate. <laughs> you know, move to agroecological methods, which can reduce or greatly reduce or completely eliminate the need for irrigation and, and recharge the aquifer. There's just so many things that can be done. But capitalism just can't think that far ahead right and it can't can't like think holistically and it can't and it doesn't have the resources the government doesn't have the resources to actually implement um or the power to implement the things that are actually needed because it would involve land use it would involve control over big ag agribusiness it would it would involve like having possibly to relocate people to different areas in an equitable way right and retraining workers in different jobs for free right because it shouldn't be on the workers to have to have to, you know, find the funds. We're all, you know, already strapped. Um, yeah, so so socialism, we need a planned economy. We need a planned economy, which totally makes sense. It's rational, right? You look at what resources you have, you look at what needs to happen. You have the most, 
you know, qualified workers and communities who are really on the ground understanding the issues involved in the decision making. We just have it's so far from that under capitalism, especially in the US. We we get to vote every two or four years, but we never get a say in actual things that are good for our survival. There's so much going on, just um it's hard when you're outside of the political system, I guess what we're describing. Um, you already talked about the, the corporatocracy that we're under, like really just it's the same parties the way I've always viewed the two. Especially I'd say the last five years, I came to that conclusion that both parties collude, they work together, they're just different colors. And um and it's and they have to have each other to survive. Because if they didn't have each other, people would start to look outside of that. And there are options outside of the uh, monopoly, really what it is, is the monopoly. But um, I was thinking about some of my libertarian friends. And I do identify as a libertarian, but not, I, I identify as a left libertarian. And I think I've talked to some people, I think I'm starting to get it through. Because a lot of libertarians are, are against war too, at, for different reasons. But I think regardless of the reasons, that can open up something to where they can be more receptive to other messaging. And I think the part where you talk about the planned economy is really important because to me, that sounds very libertarian in a sense. When you talk about economics, if you talk about the Federal Reserve, those same people argue we got to stop printing money. We have to do this and plan the economy. Okay, so this is another type of planned economy. We're just talking about the environment and climate. So I think if people are more receptive and open their minds up a little bit more, they can see that these ideas that have been basically um, meant to be viewed as just so like unrealistic or utopian, you mentioned that a lot in there. Um, they're not really utopian. They've just been propagandized to the point where we think that that's unrealistic because of the people who are trying to sell that message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and what's unrealistic is that we can overcome any of these issues that we're facing with the system of capitalism, like just hoping that the, the billionaire class has <laughs> and, and will help us out. I mean, it, it's really that that's that's truly utopian. I mean, it, it needs to shift. And, and yeah, we, we we have we all know what needs to happen in our local areas, like the people on the ground you know, dealing with the issues of climate and all the other ills of capitalism, you know, it's, it, we, but we need the power, right? But the, unfortunately the power is in the hands of these, you know, handful of, handful of billionaires. Um, but really when we organize, we have the power, when we have the resources, um, we, we can make it happen. But it's, yeah, but we need, a, <laughs> we need a plan and we need, yeah, we need to get rid of this chaotic system that we live under. I was um, really interested the part where you talk about water, wind, and solar, I think. And you use that as um, kind of like that should be the direction. But, and you debunk kind of this whole talk of nuclear energy. I, I've heard so much talk about nuclear energy lately, about how that's a solution, how it um, doesn't use all the carbon and all this stuff. Um, can you kind of explain why wind, water, and solar is a better alternative than, than people talking about nuclear? Yeah, so, I mean, now wind and solar are by far the lowest cost way to produce energy and zero emission, right? And there's even ways, you know, that, that 
you know, the wind turbine blades and solar panels are are being recycled and the batteries are being recycled. And so there's there's openings for, for there to be even less waste from that system as well. Um, and yeah, so wind, water and solar are definitely, um, we have the technology to shift, make the shift globally and meet, still meet the world's energy needs just with wind, water and solar. Unfortunately, the nuclear lobby is very strong. The nuclear industry is very strong. Um, it has a lot of power in government. It's heavily subsidized by the government, um, but has, you know, the embedded emissions of a nuclear plant are third highest next to coal, scrub coal fire plants and natural gas, which means like from start to finish, right? So building the plant, because so much concrete goes into <laughs> building a nuclear plant, which has huge greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, and the World Nuclear Association had this proposal for building a thousand new nuclear plants by 2050 as a way to address climate change. But even that would only reduce carbon emissions by 10% if we built a thousand, which would be like building one new nuclear plant every 12 days or something insane. Mm. Nuclear plants need take at least a decade to build. Like we don't have the time for that, right? We can roll out wind, especially wind and solar, really quickly because we only have we have less than a decade to really address this to to keep to keep the warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius above industrial levels, industrial era levels. Um, so so we need need to move quickly, and nuclear is not it. And you know, and there's also the issue of catastrophic reactor failure. There's the issue of radioactive waste which is, you know, always dumped in, you know, on native land or in poor communities. And there's no, there's, it lasts for 10, you know, 10,000 years. It's like, there, <laughs> how can we keep building these plants and using nuclear energy when there's no, there's no way to deal with the waste in a safe way? So yeah, so it's definitely not the way to go. It's definitely not the, the like I said, the emission, the embedded emissions, it's, it's not a, really a clean form of energy. Um, but yeah, so wind, water, solar, and shifting to shifting to you know publicly controlled utilities, publicly controlled energy systems, more localized microgrids that are connected to each to neighboring grids, so it could really um, have a more resilient, climate resilient system. Because so we can see what happens with these big grid failures, like what happened in Texas mm -hmm. a few years ago, where people froze to death in their homes. I mean the it's it's not you know uh, the the current U.S. grid is not climate resilient and it's it's um in many areas on the brink of collapse when we have these crazy storms and and extreme weather um so yeah we and yeah there's there's lots of studies that show that model these systems and and show that this is this transition is totally possible like right now with the technology that we have to shift to wind water and solar. How would you rate, and this is a, this would be a curious question for people, because I'm located in the South, I'm in middle Tennessee. There's a perception in Tennessee amongst people, I just call it, call it that. Um, and people are leaving California, like quite often, you know, from the West to areas like Nashville, Atlanta, these cities are becoming very populated. Um, how would you rate San Francisco um, as a whole, when you talk about the environment, because the perception is that people out west are just, they do everything, everything's about the environment. Like that's the perception from a southerner, you know, we just call them southerners for lack of a better term. 
Um, that's what a typical Southerner would say. And how would you describe your own environment and, and I guess debunking some of those misconceptions that people in different geographic regions may have of um, people in California, for instance? Yeah, so California does have stricter environmental regulations than, than most other states um, as far as like vehicle emissions and, and just, yeah, different um, industry emissions, air pollution. Um, but that said, it's still not nearly enough. And the solutions that are, you know, there's a big push for really, you know, expanding electric vehicle adoption and all these things, mm -hmm. which in my opinion, I mean, and others' opinion, we need to move away from individual car ownership. We need zero emission mass transit that's accessible and goes everywhere. I mean, California, you know, we're building this high-speed rail that will go from San Francisco, well, it's supposed to go from San Francisco to LA. That can't even happen, right? There's so much pushback. Um, we need, nationally, we need a high-speed rail system. I mean, most of the world has that, right? Which would reduce emissions. People wouldn't fly across the country. They could take high-speed train, you know, across the country that wouldn't have any emissions. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of perception that, and, and Cal, yeah, I mean, because the bar is so low, right? On environmental protections. <laughs> California is doing more, but but it has a long way to go, and there's a lot of contradictions, and it still relies on industry to make it happen, right? It relies on these public-private partnerships, um, you know, to build out the electric vehicle charging systems through through the state and all these things, and you know, but it, it's not enough. Um, like I said, with the drought, you know, there's like a Sustainable Water Act that was passed in. I'm, misnaming that but um i think a sustainable groundwater act that was passed in like 2014 but there's really no it sounds great right address the drought there's no actual plan to of how to to do that because it's up to you know it's up to like individual municipalities or or land managers or you know these these other entities to make it happen without really support or an overarching plan of how to make it happen um, so yeah, it's it's sort of the same story in California. It's just, yeah, people tend to be a little more aware of environmental issues, but but it still has a long way to go. Um, and you know, the wildfires too, it's like over a century of, you know, of fire suppression and not implementing controlled burns to get rid of all the, the fuel that builds up. And now we see where we're at with these mega wildfires. They're just I mean, decimating whole communities. Um, you know, and that, that came from, you know, the Forest Service wanting to protect the wood, the trees, so they could sell it as timber and, and also like to, to, to separate the native populations from their traditional culture and land management practices, which was you know, every few years doing controlled burns in their, on their lands to, to, cause they saw <laughs> you don't do that every few years, you're going to have these massive uncontrolled wildfires. So, you know, how do you play? It's like we're playing catch up. There's some funding that's going to that, to, to implementing controlled burns throughout the state, but it's like, how do you deal with this fuel buildup from over a century? Um, it's really without serious funding and serious, you know, you know, huge numbers of people <laughs> employed to do it, right? Um, it's just not enough what's happening. I asked that question because, um, first of all, I appreciate that perspective, but 
I knew you would understand it because there's we talked about capitalism and we all live under it, but there are different gradients of it depending on where you are. And I think that the, the ironic part of this discussion, when we talk about um, comparing areas and perceptions and everything else, is that the people who claim to be the most conservative people tend to live in the most socialistic friendly environments, which is, I think is just funny. Um, and I think a lot of it's just a language thing. I don't think, I, I think a lot of people are living socialistically without even realizing it. Um, because I've been to some of these places and they have like the wind energy, the solar energy. Um, they believe in community farming. I'm saying to myself, but you're calling people in California this and that when actually, if anything, the skyrocketing rents and everything else and all the unnecessary energy used, to me, that's not the correct portrayal whatsoever. You're actually making a different argument. You're making an argument for socialism. <laughs> and in a way, you're living under it in a way and not even, you know, misnaming it, whatever, because of all this um, propaganda and everyone's in their own um closed-minded, I guess, circles of people, you know, you hang out with your 20 group of people that think the same way, but that can be further from the truth, the narratives and the realities that the people actually um, live. Yeah, and, and California is a very pro-capitalist state. We have more billionaires <laughs> in the Bay Area than any other part of the country. You know, it's very much about, you know, big business making profits, you know, while you know, looking green or, you know, doing certain things that, you know, appear to be progressive <laughs> because, you know, because, you know, the, the history of the state to the population tended to be more radical, you know, in the 60s and 70s and really, you know, like I said, any concessions we get from the corporations is because of the population pushing for it. Um, but it doesn't mean that California is socialist by any means. It's very, very capitalistic. Mm hmm. You address something in your book that's interesting. I'm actually going to have one of my good friends from high school come on. He was on episode three, Ben Setagatfar, and he talked a little bit about AI in episode three. But I'm curious to hear your views because you mentioned how AI could actually help in a sustainable um, socialistic society in the future. Like you mentioned that in the book. Um, how would that work with artificial intelligence being implemented in this um, new eco-socialist society? Yeah, I think that was actually from the Socialist Reconstruction book. Okay. I um, thought I, I read but... something in Climate, um, too, about the climate solutions. Yeah, I think I talked about, yeah, I mean, AI, the development of AI under capitalism and automation in general means more destitution for the working class, right? It means more layoffs, it means lower wages. Um, you know, there's gonna be huge, even more is coming, right? Of, of layoffs because, because of development of AI, because the corporate owners much prefer having automation than actual workers that they have to pay or give healthcare benefits to, or, you know, deal with pesky unions or anything like that, right? So it's in their interest to max, in the, in the goal of maximizing their profits to, to get rid of workers and, and move towards automation. But under socialism, what it would mean is more free time for all of us, right? We would we would all have been have the benefits of that, right? We would all, you know, have to work less, have to do less because of the automation um, and still live full, you know, 
full lives with with all the things we need um, under socialism, but under capitalism, it, it spells <laughs> destitution for large portions of the working class, which you can see is already happening, but it's going to speed up, unfortunately, um, until until the workers rise up and make it <laughs> make it <laughs> on a different trajectory, right? it can be a beneficial thing, right? But but under under capitalism it's it's not. And you know, yeah, it's 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 a different story. Yeah, I could see, but it, it wouldn't work unless we transition into that society that you um talked about in the book because um AI, if anything, is just gonna cause it just capitalism to accelerate more for sure. Like I totally agree. Yeah. Um but I felt like that when I was reading that, I was like, I could, maybe it could work, but who will be controlling the AI? You know, that's the that's the issue. If the workers aren't controlling it, I guess it really doesn't matter. You yeah. know, at that point, um, how good the technology, the efficiency of it is, um, because that's the argument that my friend's probably going to make um, when he comes on is how AI could actually help us have more family time and free time and stuff. So mm -hmm. maybe we're speaking. A similar language, we just have different ways of getting there. I don't know. But um, but it, it, it's interesting because it seems like that's an inevitable development. I mean, we already have automation. Um, it's just yeah. the scale isn't, you know, as big as it could be. Um, but like you said before, these this obsession with green cars and um, electric cars, I just, I don't think people are really thinking at all when they see these ideas. I mean, it's still selling capitalism you just have a green label on it <laughs> and, exactly. and capitalism has done that um just with the and and this is not to degrade anyone's identities or anything but just the the emphasis of these banners um just the late the over labeling of things um putting um the rainbow flag on chevron oil um putting i mean just like all this stuff i'm just like are you kidding me they're basically exploiting that message is what they're doing. Like, just because you put something on it doesn't, you're still covering up the same system. It's still the same system. I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> man, people are like, are you kidding me, Kiko? What are you complaining about? I'm like, do you not see that? How It's marketing. It's all marketing. marketing. <laughs> the, pink, the pink fighter jets they have for like uh, breast cancer awareness month and the you know, the, what was it, the police cruiser that was, you know, they rolled out for Black History Month. I mean, it's just, it's sick. It's just sick. ridiculous. <laughs> it's like some deranged fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. And, and the big oil companies are spending a lot of money and they always have on marketing to, to pretend, you know, to put out this false perception that they're doing something about, even though their entire existence is the problem, right? And a lot of these companies, the big oil companies knew in as early as the 1950s that their products were causing global warming. Mm -hmm. And they did everything in their power to cover that up, to spread disinformation, to block, you know, any any shifts towards renewables, you know, it's and they still do to this day. And then they put out their ads that are all happy and green and, you know, try to convince us all that they're doing good. What is the hardest part? Um when you present this book to people who may not be on the same page with, with your views, um, is, is the hardest part selling that climate change is a possibility or that the way you want to um, change the climate under a socialistic system, which one seems to be giving you the most pushback, if any at all? Yeah, I haven't really gotten a lot of pushback. I did a 30 
33, 34 city speaking tour this past year um, and really reached a lot of people all over the country um, and have done lots of these interviews too. Um, but yeah, I haven't got a lot of pushback. I think the, the biggest thing is like, how can we actually make it happen in the sense of how can the workers take control, right? How can we have this big transformation of our economy into socialism, which is possible. I mean, it's totally possible. Like in the past, it's happened in other countries where revolutions have happened and, and state power has gone to the workers and, you know, and big, big concessions can also be made. You know, we won a lot of concessions from the ruling class here in the 30s. I mean, there was a Granted, there was a very, very strong union, you know, movement in the country and general strikes and more class consciousness in, in the population in general, but but big gains can be made. I mean, it has happened before and it, you don't know what will spark an uprising of the people, right? Um, we've seen it, you know, just in the last few years, the George Floyd murder, um, you know, millions of people around the country came out, some for the very first time in their lives. Um, we're in the streets demanding, you know, that this not go on anymore. So you don't know what what will bring people into action, but when they are in action, great changes can happen. So that, yeah, I feel like that's the biggest thing is like this, yeah, shifting this knowledge, this hope that we and the 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 possibility of implementing these solutions into actually, you know, manifesting and and, and happening. And that's and that's something that we've um, talked about on the forum before, um, episode eighteen. Jake Herrico and Jacob, we talked a lot about um, theory, Marxism, and stuff. But I think that um, the way we message things has a lot to do with the way it is perceived too. Um, and I think now, and I urge my listeners um, that sometimes we have to really put our political differences aside and because we have to optimize who we can reach to. We may not be able to reach everybody, but um, by at least extending dialogue, we can reach more people that way. I've been surprised myself the last three years, and I've told my wife this, I would not have started this a couple of years ago because um, something just kept me a little bit more resistant from reaching out to, to different people. Even though I was kind of sick of the system, I was still holding a grudge in a way towards other working class people, even though we were very different types of working class people. And so I guess that would be my message is that um, sometimes we have to put differences aside to give opposition a chance to see if it's good opposition or not, because I don't think all opposition is bad. I just don't think that um, we've connected all the way yet. And sometimes it may not work out, but at least you gave it a shot. And I don't know if we're really giving ourselves a shot right now because the messaging is to divide everybody. Um, I've seen an increase in the division even more um, after COVID. It seems like it's gotten even worse. Um, everything that's used now is almost a tool to just keep the people fragmented even more. Like, um, and and I, I would urge that to people to just really stop condemning people that are next door to you so quickly and just understand that they're going to have their baggage just like you do. You're going to have your baggage coming in, but we have to find a way to connect better with people and um, and stop all this shooting down people in your own class. I mean, I just, I don't understand it, but I understand that capitalism is working and the messaging is working for the capitalist system. Yeah. And I find when you really just talk to people, even if they're, yeah, aren't, 
you know, leftists even, or, you know, they vote Republican or whatever, you know, when you actually talk to people about the issues in a simple way, like, you know, we all need clean air, we all need clean water, we all need a livable planet, we all, you know, all these things, right? We should all, we'd all deserve a living wage and healthcare. And, you know, why should we, you know, why should students be indebted forever for going, for getting an education that will benefit the corporation that they work for later, right? When you just talk about it in simple terms, like you can win people over and you you find that you actually agree when it comes down to it on the actual issues. Um, but yes, the, the media, the government, everyone, you know, the system itself tries, their, that's their main tool, right? And it has been from the very beginning is to keep us all divided and fighting each other and blaming each other for the problems that we face when it's really, we should be looking looking to the top and blaming them because they're the ones who are hoarding all the wealth and 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 only throwing us crumbs when we when we do stand up and demand it. When you visit, because I know you've been to different countries, um, and you talk about that some in the book, just um, obviously you got so much knowledge going visiting these places as far as how they're creating um, sustainable societies. Um, you talked about how China is crazy, a country as big as China is with so many people in it, but yet you can't even compare the United States to countries like China even now. Um, when you talk about how much emissions we have and just how much damage we do to the climate, um, can you kind of go into debunking that? Because that's something to me that would be immediate to someone, well, how can you do that? But yet a country that big is doing it, but we can't do it? Right, it goes back to the system, right? Um, the U.S. has historically the the largest the, the the largest contributions of greenhouse gas emissions, you know, starting from the Industrial Revolution on. So the largest cumulative emissions it's twenty it's responsible for twenty seven percent of global greenhouse gas emissions since the Industrial Revolution. The U.S. is, um, and even today, per capita, the emissions from the U.S. are the highest, right? Because, you know, because so much is wasted because of the low level of development and the corporations. I mean, one of the statistics I have in my book is 70, what is it? 100 corporations are responsible for 71% of global greenhouse gas emissions since, you know, since 1988, I believe. Um, so it really goes back to these companies, right? And, you know, China, China, even though they have a lot of emissions, um, they're a huge country, but Per capita, they don't, you know, per capita, they, their their footprint is way lower than the U.S. And it's a socialist government, so they can plan. <laughs> they have a planned economy, so they're able to implement these big, you know, shifts. They're the largest producer of electric buses globally. Um, also, um, th their high-speed rail systems are <laughs> renowned. I mean, it's like 30, I think it's like 32,000 miles of of high-speed rail lines, and they're planning to double that number in the next decade. And they're building these eco-cities, like 250 eco-cities within China. 30, I believe it's 30 of those are what they're calling sponge cities, which really are, are able to address drought and flooding by, by creating these wetlands within the cities and these places for rain rainfall to actually be captured and go into the aquifer and being be stored for for later when when there's drought um they they had you know major reductions in particulate matter pollution in the beijing area 
um, within just four years, reduced the emissions by 35%. And that particular matter comes from burning of fossil fuels mainly. Um, and that's, you know, I work in air quality regulation here in the Bay Area. And if we saw a half a percent reduction of a pollutant in a four-year period, we'd be celebrating. So like 35% reduction really shows that what can happen when government actually has control over industry, right? Can determine how, you know, what's happening on the ground and, and transportation as well. It's a big factor. Um, so yeah, China is able to make these big transformations and really and but they're also we have to remember they're still a developing country they had their revolution in 1945 49 and came from a very underdeveloped state you know and just in a few decades these last few decades have really developed um developed their capacity their production their you know built built major cities and things like that and really brought up the population just in 2020 they alleviated they only only in 2020 alleviated extreme poverty in the country and brought, I think it's 150 million people, 850 million people out of extreme poverty through this mass, you know, they mobilized the entire population to make this happen, right? So they sent people out into these rural areas to really look at why, what, who's suffering, you know, what can we do? What, what are the, the hardships these people are facing and really lift people up um, and work in community to do that? And that's so not what happens here in the US, right? It's like, we're, we're so disconnected from each other and community isn't mobilized, which is what needs to happen, right? When you want big shifts to happen in society, you need to mobilize the population to make it happen um, and have everyone play a part in that. So in a socialist country like China, they're able to do that. They're really, you know, they have the tools at hand. They have, they have a planned economy. They have the resources of society. They have control over industry. So you're, they're able to make these major, major shifts that are happening. Um, and their Belt and Road Initiative too. It's, it's you know, the, the corporate media, you know, calls them imperialists and blah, blah, blah. But it, what they're really doing, are, it's actually these, you know, South to South um, partnerships, these partnerships across the global South with developing countries in China to really build up infrastructure, which was the opposite of what the colonizers did, which was just to, any infrastructure they built was to extract the resources and steal them from these, right? Um, but the Belt and Road is really, yeah, building trains, building power systems, building, you know, things that people actually need in the country and, and employing people, local people to do it as well, working in true partnership um, with no strings attached, unlike what the imperialists, do when they go to different countries right um so yeah there it is a big difference and it's yeah it's hard to i i personally have not been to china i would love to go actually but um yeah since covid it's it's very hard to to go without having to quarantine for a long time and things like that but yeah it's it's a big it's a big difference i've been to cuba a number of times i mean even there you see you see what they can implement with i mean they've lived under a 60 plus year us stranglehold blockade um, with very limited resources because of that, but they're able to do so much um, with the resources they do have. They have they they developed one of their first agroecological farming systems, um, you know, in the early '90s, and have very developed um, very developed farming system that really works with nature. Um, they also, like I said, they have this 100-year plan um, for climate change adaptation. Um, they just have a very conservation-minded mindset, and they always have um, from very early on. They they protect their forests, and they they have a, a big reforestation program because 
the colonizers <laughs> chopped all the forests down and planted sugarcane. And so they're trying to restore those areas as well. Um, so yeah, you can see with Cuba and China what, what can really happen when, when the workers are in control, right? And have, have the resources um, in their hands to really to, to put the well-being of their populations first, as well as really the well-being of the, the world's populations, people, people and the planet first, as opposed to a handful of billionaires' um, profits, right? Yes, um, I read your book for sure. Um, I get like I was telling um, the audience at the very beginning. I read it, and I definitely took it to heart when it said it was an eco um, socialist perspective, and almost like a manifesto. And um, I took the climate information to heart more because I didn't know as much about that information. But I, there's just so much stuff, and um, I would definitely link the information in the description so the audience has access to this book. You talk about immediate decarbonization. You say that 4.7 billion acres on five continents were reforested. If they could be reforested with native species and that could store two thirds of the carbon emitted since the industrial revolution. I mean, stuff like that. And then you talked about 90% of plastics could be made from kelp. Um, mm -hmm. These are very, these are solutions. I mean, they're, they're in the book. I mean, and that's why I say it's not an exaggeration, the title of the book, because I had never honestly researched that stuff before. And it's good to just have a, a book or a manual to basically tell you, hey, these are the ways that you can implement um, and get to this society, this um, climatic change that we need. Uh, literally a climatic change is what we need. Um, but I was I was thinking of something else, the politics of it. I can I always had to go back to politics at the end though because this is conducive um, only if the system changes. To me, I thought of the war crisis that we're in. To, that's an immediate thing. I think that's an immediate topic that we could really, I guess, drive home. And then dismantling the political system that we have. I think that in order for this society to happen, we have to dismantle the political system that we have now. And it's not just um, it's not just economics either. It's ideology that we have to dismantle. And that, to me, that's the hardest part. I think in um, I guess the end goal of the message is it utopian. I don't know. I don't know if it is or not. I'm still undecided. That's why I call this the Free Thinkers Forum, Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum, because it's always open interpretation. I don't think these ideas are utopian. I don't think the ideas are utopian at all. Um, will everyone get on the same page or will most people get on the same page? I think that's the part that I'm struggling with. Um, just, just because friends that I grew up with, it seems like they're becoming more complacent over time and they're questioning things less it seems like there's the opposite is going on when I feel like things should be questioned more. And I feel like society now is just so dumbed down with the technology. And um, it's like the internet has been used in a way to where we've escaped almost in our own rabbit holes. And, and that's, that's what scares me the most. Because when I was growing up, it was pretty much all we had was encyclopedias. And the internet really wasn't a thing yet. And so your mind could still expand and you could be more open to things. And I think now 
is almost too open and people just fall in the crevices. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to why we need to be organizing in our communities, right? Because when you actually connect with people, you know, and 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 work together in struggle, it can be any issue, right? Whatever your the biggest issue in your community is, right? Um, but you see, you then see, you know, the power that you have. You feel the power that you have when you're fighting together um, collectively, and you also see, you know, it, it helps bring everyone's awareness up to to the real <laughs> the root cause of these problems right um and things can shift very quickly in people's consciousness um and yeah i mean to some degree yeah we we're we all you know we we can become complacent but i think yeah that's the importance of organizing to 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 bridge those those divides and to you know overcome the complacency because because people do want they're energized we're energized by each other right when we're in the streets and we're organizing together in our communities we're we're all we're all lifted up um and people feel that when they're when they do engage so it's just how do we reach more people right how do we how do we get out more how do we yeah inspire more people to take action and and be you know and build these these community connections locally as well as then connecting you know nationally and collect connecting globally um but people are doing it, and when they do it, when they engage, when they come around, when they when they get active, their 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 lives are transformed in a good way. Um, and yeah, a lot of these you know things that I write about in climate solutions, and I mean what I what I argue is that yeah, we can't solve it under capitalism, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for reforms under capitalism. We should we should fight for everything we can get within the system without with the main with the long term goal of of shifting the system right. Um, so that we don't have to keep fighting, <laughs> fighting for these crumbs from the capitalists, but but actually have control of the resources because the workers create all the wealth in society. Without the workers, the billionaires couldn't be billionaires because they don't know how to work. Actually, they don't know how to do all the things that <laughs> they do. All they know how to do is like, yeah, I don't know, trade money on the stock market. Maybe not even that. They pay someone to do that for them too. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just it takes. It, it, in in way in one way it's very simple people's consciousness and 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 the way they see themselves in the world can shift very very quickly but it does take hard work too by those of us who are organizers to get out there and meet more people and to 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 make these connections with folks um because people also you know maybe they're they 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 hate the system and they want change but they they feel very isolated right the system is very good at keeping us isolated like you said um and they they feel very alone, and then and then maybe they'll see like, oh, there's a there's a protest in the corner in my small town. Like, what's this about? And they go and talk to people, and they and it's just like when you make that one connection, it can change your whole, but you can change your whole perspective on the world, um, and the 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 trajectory of of where you're going with your life and and how you're engaging in politics. Um, so yeah, it just speaks to you know that's how I got involved. Like I I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up at all with a, a radical family or um, class conscious family at all. But, you know, I, I saw a, a flyer for an anti-war protest in 2002 here in San Francisco. And I, I didn't I didn't know there were even protests <laughs> still in this country. And, and I got involved from there and it, it changed my life. And I I saw hope for the future, you know. Um, so, yeah, things can happen very shift shift very quickly on a personal level with individuals um, when we come into collective action. Having said everything that I said before, 
And people know, you can go watch some of the previous episodes. I will leave on the optimistic note. I do believe before the end of, of my life, I definitely believe that there will be um, an uprising from the people. And, and I think, I, I definitely think we're going to have another revolution. And I think it's inevitable. I really do. Um, and I think that's that's the tension. There is a, a very small, abrupt window. It doesn't take a long time, like you said. It does not take a long time. Um, mm -hmm. It's amazing the things that can mobilize people. I think it will be something that's quite abrupt, but I think there's also a fascination too much with the 60s. Um, we have to have another reference point. We got to stop. Um, that's That was a different time. It was 60 mm -hmm. years ago. And we're in a different context now. And I think that the system itself is going to be the agitation that causes the revolution because um, I, I just don't see how it's sustainable. This, um, like, I, I see people getting bored making money. I see people bored because they don't know what to do with themselves, <laughs> you know, because there's no, in a way, it's anti-innovative because you always hear that about um, the super capitalist um argument is that innovation innovation but i can i see it as very anti-innovative in ways and i like how you emphasize um innovative ways into incorporating a more a green society and um it's something that i really never thought about before but um but you also pointed out even the issues with um the agricultural industry um how just it seems like every every industry you look at the climate industry um, you mentioned the NGOs earlier. I mean, we have these Greta Thunberg types and we have all, all these figureheads. And then you realize that they're backed by multi-billionaires and, and millionaires. And, and so the messaging, even from these same industries, are still is a compromised message from the capitalist class. And so it, it's like everything that it touches, it just contaminates it. <laughs> and so I definitely, I understand that as a leftist, like I totally get it. And so I guess, I guess the the work that we have to do is to, is to show other people that there are other possibilities. And I think you did a great job of showing those other possibilities. Yeah. That's a big part of it is to show, yeah, show that a better world is possible. Right. And that we, yeah, we don't have to live in this, you know, capitalist dominated world where we're begging for crumbs from the ruling class. And yeah, the NGO industrial system is really i mean they're they're beholden what they do they're beholden to their corporate backers or their government backers or the grants that they get um so they really have to um censor themselves even if they are against the system they have to they have to work within you know the confines of the system in whatever they're doing um because of their funding um and the the PSL we're we're not a nonprofit we we are self-funded and we it's the members who who keep the organization going so we're not beholden to any any big funders um so we can actually act independently and put out our the the, the true politics and the true you know analysis of what's going on in the world and what the solutions are so yeah it's it's it is a big problem with the climate justice movement that it's so it has to it has to fit everything within within the reform the reform system um which is really a dead end you all do amazing work, by the way, the PSL. Um, like, I've read a lot of your literature. Like, I've known about the PSL for a long time. Um, is it only... That chapter's in other parts of the country, right? Because I know that... I think there's one in Nashville, Tennessee, even. Uh, um, mm -hmm. 
but how does that work? And I didn't want to talk a lot about that today because I'm going to emphasize to be more so your book and not electoral politics. But as far as the PSL um, expanding, is that something that's in the cars um, later down the road um, as far as like ballot access initiatives? Or is that less of a concern? Because obviously it seems like it's more of a grassroots direct action type um, organization more than anything. And just like the literature, the education component and not so much focus on on the political suit and tie type situation. Yeah, so we're a national organization. We have branches all over the country and small towns, small and large cities um, all across the country. I, I do believe we're in Nashville. I know we're in Tennessee, different parts of Tennessee. But yeah, and we do we do engage in electoral politics too. Um, we we run candidates for president. We run candidates for local elections, and and we don't usually, you know, generally we don't see that as like we're doing it to win because we don't have corporate backing. We don't have the money to actually. Um, to campaign in, in the sense that the, the billionaire class does, but we do it to engage in that dialogue and that debate, right? Because everyone's attention is on the elections at certain times. And, and that's a way for us to actually be in dialogue with people and, 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 and talk about working class issues, right? That the two-party system never talks about. Um, so yeah, we, we sort of fight, we fight on many different fronts and part of it is electoral politics. Um, but but also yeah just grassroots organizing we we see is is really the way to build the organization and build the movement um, but yeah we of course want to reach more people and 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 increase our membership but you know because we I mean the left is so small in this country it's you know unfortunate we we want to build more alliances and and more yeah more folks on the ground. Um, and spreading this this message and and doing the work and and, and organizing our class, um, but yeah, so so yeah, we're looking we're looking always looking to expand and grow, um, but it's it's through the work on the ground, grassroots organizing. Mm, that last point you made about the left is so small in the country. I think that that's to to be determined. I think we I think we have a silent left. But um, I think the electoral process has, has killed any sort of mobilization of that left. And so I think, if anything, it's, it's, it's definitely just dissolved it more into capitalism. That's exactly what it's done. Um, and that's why, like, I have friends um, of all stripes, while well, a lot of them associate with Democrats, they've basically taken those kind of, of people and examined them as far as, like, what their views are. And somehow they've been able to concoct them all into that blue suit in some kind of special way. And it's like the people who are already like less receptive to that messaging, they already had those people on the red side. And so all they needed to do really was just find a way to break up these other elements. And um, we know that there have been strong programs in history, the COINTELPRO, and just all the government condemnation under that, just activists. I mean, it's so sad. I mean, that people who have done just unbelievable work, like true revolutionaries in the 60s that I'm mm -hmm. not going to call by name, are now supporting Democrats in 2023. Like, that's where, we, that's where the left is now. We mm -hmm. went from radical revolutionaries with own, their own parties, and now we've basically been dissolved in the, I don't know what it is now. Uh, a lot of the people that I know who are on the left, they don't even participate in electoral politics. And mm -hmm. myself, I'm a strategic participant, <laughs> is what I call it. Been in such a red state 
like Tennessee. Mm -hmm. I've been more strategic yeah. about voting. But I think the messaging is way more important. I think educating is way more important. And that's why I started this, um, is to get voices on that can, you know, reach out to people one by one. I think that's what we're going to have to do is just get in the streets and, and go to our neighbors and go to our neighborhoods and local areas and just kind of grow it from the local because um, everything else is just, I don't know. I think that's the biggest part is the organizing and then we can worry about the electoral stuff later. I totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we need to connect with each other. That's a big part of it. Really, yeah. But okay. Tina, I have to get a couple of kids in a little while from school. Oh, sure. I did, I did want uh, my audience to know if they had a question or comment, what would be the most effective way to reach you? They could reach out via email to sf, sf as in San Francisco, at pslweb.org, and those messages will get to me. Um, just address it to me and they'll be forwarded. And if anyone, you know, I'm I'm always open to come and speak at, you know, our community organizations or schools or whatever. Um, so if anyone wants to book me for speaking engagement, they can reach out there as well. Um, and I write regularly on environmental and climate issues for Liberation News. So it's liberationnews.org. You can find my, my ongoing um, analysis of different different environmental issues as well as find my book there. Absolutely. And um, I can talk off air as far as like the best way to link that because I want to link everything through that, like avoid Amazon hookups. Um, so yeah, I'm going to link all that information in the description, your book information, and hopefully we can have you on down the road to discuss more of your work as well. And um, the PSL, again, does great stuff. Tina does great stuff. And um, we appreciate all the work that the Liberation School does and um, just educating people one by one and um, beautiful people. This was a great episode 35, episode 36. We have S.L. Canton coming on. He's going to talk a lot about India, the BRICS um, coalition, um, geopolitics, uh, some Ukraine, Russia, not too much because we've almost exhausted that topic on this forum <laughs> as it is just having different analysts come on with their publications. But um, we have quite a few people. We have Cecilia Prado coming on next week to talk about unions and some of the labor movements going around the country. We have just Norm Finkelstein is coming on, um, Don Duke. We have just tons of activists, political, politically conscious people, um, politicians that are run for president for local office on the forum. Make sure you subscribe to Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum on YouTube and all podcasts and platforms. We had a rating of, um, I think we're ranked within the 250 top podcasts in Austria um, last month, um, according to Spotify statistics. We have quite an international audience. We've reached 38 different countries. So um, we wanted to be that way. That was the goal um, to reach 100 different countries by the end of 2023. And so just um, spread the message, tell everyone to subscribe. We don't want your money. We want your minds <laughs> so we can think together. I, I could care less about the money. This is like a public service as far as I'm concerned. So um, have a great day and we'll talk soon. Cheers.